Hey, Crawl Space listeners, we wanted to bring you an episode of Invisible Tears, which is a great podcast with Jane Borowski, Amanda, and Drew Bedard, and they speak about Jane's journey from being an attack victim of a likely serial killer to healing. And in this episode, this trio is speaking about episode seven of Dark Valley. We highly recommend that you check out their podcast, Invisible Tears. You can get that wherever you listen to your podcast. You can also check out invisible-tears.com and you can see everything that they got going on there and you can link right to their show from their website. All right, I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. Make sure to listen to Invisible Tears. My name is Jane Borowski, host of Invisible Tears. This podcast will be about my story and my words, talking about my own personal experiences and self-healing. I do not claim to be a therapist, counselor, or licensed psychologist. Hello, my name is Amanda Bedard, and I'm the co-host, producer, and editor of Invisible Tears. I'm a Reiki master, certified professional life coach, spiritual coach, wellness coach, and a counseling practitioner. Some of the content you will hear in this podcast may be disturbing to some. Viewer discretion is advised, but it is our hope by putting this information out there that we may help others to heal. We will always be a platform for truth and healing. Brought to you by Glassbox Media, this is Invisible Tears. Welcome to the Invisible Tears weekly bonus episode, where we react to the Dark Valley episode that dropped last week. This is a reaction to episode seven. So welcome to Invisible Tears. Thank you for being here with us today. I'm Jane, uh, host of Invisible Tears, and I'm here with my wonderful co-host, Drew, and his wife, Amanda. Hi, guys. Hello. Hey, guys. So we're doing our reaction episode to Dark Valley, episode seven, is it? Episode seven, covering Barbara Agnew. Yes. I was looking forward to this one because um, not a whole lot of information about her and uh, there was some new information about her on, on this episode and I, I really liked it. But as always, we'll start with Drew and his questions because he always has such awesome questions. It was great that Jen was able to really isolate the timeline as far as when she stopped at the rest area, but then also when her car was found. Yes, didn't really know before this that it wasn't until Monday that the car was found by a maintenance worker. So it also shows that the entire day Sunday, neither the plows nor the cops noticed the car parked in the rest area for the entire day. Now, with it being a big snowstorm, that could be understandable, but the cops and plows would be up and down 91, cleaning it up, you know, all day Sunday. So why 
Why didn't anybody look into it? Yeah, you know, that's something I asked Devin about, my son Devin. He plows for the Department of Transportation. And he even said that if he's plowing even a pull-off and he noticed a vehicle there and he goes back, you know, hours later to do another sweep, another plow, and if that vehicle's still there, it's not unusual because what they're thinking is the vehicle got stuck and they were able to call somebody to come and pick them up. So to really look at the vehicle or go, um, you know, up to the vehicle or anything like that, that is something that they really wouldn't do, especially if it's still snowing, especially if they're still plowing and um, doing some really aggressive snow removal. They will assume that the vehicle got stuck, somebody came to pick them up, and that they would return to get the vehicle. So. Yeah, I question that too. So I asked Devin, what better person to ask than Devin? Someone that does do the plowing for the highway department for uh, New Hampshire DOT. So that does make sense. And thank you for explaining that, Jane, and asking Devin that. It's interesting, though, to me that so the car was towed away on Monday, the following Monday, um, when the maintenance worker, Toby, saw it. The thought popped into my mind, and I don't know if it popped into you guys' mind either. When they towed it, they didn't notice anything odd in or around the car. I understand that snow had still fallen, so possibly the blood outside of the car was covered in snow. I get that, but it was my understanding that a fight ensued somewhat inside the car as well. I, I just sort of found that piece a little bit odd that they wouldn't have found evidence essentially of a struggle inside the car when they towed it. Exactly. And I found that odd too. Finding the car on Monday is when they should have noticed something like that. Something happened in that car. Sunday, I can see not paying much attention to the car, but the tow truck drivers, don't they usually like look in the vehicle, see if it's unlocked? see if there's keys left, something before they tow it. So yeah, that I found that kind of strange too. Now, I thought I had remember hearing that keys were found in the vehicle, but Jen made, made no mention of that. Yeah, I've never heard that. Okay, I might be thinking something different. But uh, you would think that the keys were found because she obviously was in the vehicle and she had moved the vehicle. So keys must have been in the car. So yeah, they must have found the keys in the car. I don't understand where they did not notice blood or anything because it was my understanding that car was splattered with blood. She was stabbed inside the vehicle is what they believed. So I don't know. That doesn't make much sense. Now, if the car was sitting there overnight throughout the snowstorm and when it did finally get towed on Monday, they might not have bothered to clean it off just hook it up to the tow truck and get it out of there. Therefore, they wouldn't have seen the blood on the inside. And same with the blood on the outside. In their mind, who's to say it wasn't um, a coolant leak or our steering went on it and that was the fluid that was seen. So maybe they didn't even put two and two together that it was actually blood. Yeah, because it definitely sounds like they did until Wednesday when Toby found the ski vest sweater and the wallet dumped 
in the trash there. That's when the police were alerted. And once they realized it was crime scene, they actually ended up towing the vehicle back to recreate the scene. Yeah. It's odd. I wish she was able to talk to the tow truck driver or, or got some information, you know, what the tow truck driver did or saw or didn't see and why he didn't see it or because again getting back to towing the car most of the time they go in and they want to put the car in neutral to bring it up see in my mind they're using a flatbed tow truck i guess if they didn't use a flatbed tow truck and they just hooked it up and lifted the front then they wouldn't have to worry about putting it in neutral i'm talking it through my head (laughs) okay yeah that makes more sense we end up doing that a lot, I think, with these episodes, too. I've noticed that in the editing process. We're, we're actually doing that a lot. We, we talk through things in real time as we're sort of bringing up ideas and questions and spitballing. So it's good. And answering our own questions. <laughs> so Jen was able to bring up two theories as to why Barbara might have stopped at the rest area, one of which she had to go to the bathroom, and the second was she had to use a payphone, both of which, even though she was only 10 minutes from home, you could see somebody stopping there. Now that stretch of I-91 where she was going, that's a really long stretch of not a whole lot going on. And if you're driving on there in the middle of the snowstorm, having to go to the bathroom, in her mind, it might've been a, I know that there's a rest area here. I can go to the bathroom. And that's just gonna make the last 10 minutes of this drive hell of a lot more relaxing. Nothing more stressful than driving in a snowstorm, having to piss and not finding any place. So that was, where my mind first went was she just had to go to the bathroom, even though 10 minutes away, hey, it's stopping in some place that she's familiar. Yeah. Same with the payphone. Possibly she just wanted to stop to give Lisa, Jade's uh, daughter, a call just to let her know, hey, I'm on my way home. I know you're there with your boyfriend. Get everything tidied up before I get there. I know it's already late. Don't want to walk in down at anything. So a little friendly heads up. So either one of those theories, definitely, it makes sense. Because when the whole, ah, she was only 10 minutes away, why stop to go to the bathroom? Jane, in your case, the same could be said. You're only 10, 15 minutes from home. Why not just wait to get home to have a cold drink? But in your mind, it was a, I know exactly where I am. I'm only 10 minutes from home, but why not have a nice ice cold soda for that ride? Same with Barbara. I want to make this last 10 minute drive without having to piss my pants. So why not yeah. just stop? I feel the same way. It's like, um, you know, she just got done driving an hour and a half. I don't want to discriminate with anybody or anything, but she was 39 years old. And I know my bladder control when I was reaching 40 was was not all that great. I really think that she figured stop real quick, use the bathroom, give a quick phone call and uh, be on her way. And she'd be home. The drive was an hour and a half, big snowstorm. I'm sure she wanted to, you know, maybe call and just let them know that, you know, I'm on my way home. I'm safe. You know, I'll be there in a few minutes. I do it on my cell phone all the time. I could be at Walmart coming from Wilmington and stop at Walmart and give Jessica a quick call and say, hey, I'm at Walmart. I'll be home in five minutes. For no particular reason, you just give a quick call and give a heads up. She might have called to see if they needed anything at the store on her way home. Did she need milk or anything for the house, seeing how it was storming? So I don't question why she stopped as much as I did before, especially where we had gone to the rest area and saw that there were bathrooms. And then Jenna discovered there were payphones. It did make more sense to me now more than it did before 
why she would have stopped. Yeah, because if you drive by it now, never once would you think that that was a rest area that would have bathrooms and pay phones. So you're right. After finding out more of this information, kind of made us reevaluate the situation. Yeah. And having been to that rest area before, it was taken down and demolished just so our listeners can understand. That was a very small rest area. It was a house. Actually, it was a very, very teeny house that was a rest area at that location, which isn't uncommon along the routes of Vermont or New Hampshire to actually have rest areas that aren't like necessarily like a big, huge facility, almost like smaller houses that are sort of repurposed into rest areas. But yeah, I agree with you guys. I think that she stopped to use the restroom and the payphone. And now this is multiple cases where a payphone is involved between Barbara's, James, and Ellen's. So it seems like they were either hitchhikers or were around a payphone, except for Linda Moore. So I do wonder, was that aroused to get into Linda's home? Did he stop by and ask her to use her phone? And that's when the attack happened. And possibly he was going to try to abduct her, but she mentioned something about her husband coming home. And that's why Linda's attack happened the way that it did in the home. You know, we think that he was trying to abduct her, but when he found out that the window of opportunity was really small, is that why he just carried the attack out in the manner that he did? Yeah, that's a great point. There's been some questions over the years whether my attack was connected with the other attacks. You know, are they all connected to one? And um, the more I find out, um, the more information we gather about what happened, where they were, and the time of day, I definitely believe, without a doubt, my attack and Barbara and Ellen's murders are all connected. No doubt in my mind about that. Ellen, Betsy Critchley, and Eva Morse's attack, their murders, it's pretty evident that their attacks were connected because their bodies were found 500 feet apart, five years apart. So you can definitely connect theirs. And I believe connecting mine and Ellen and Barbara Agnew's would be a safe bet too. And Bernice Gornemash's. I would more connect hers with Ellen's too. So I can connect mine to Barbara and Ellen's. And then I can connect Ellen's to, because she was found along Sugar River. So I could easily connect Ellen's and Eva Morse's and Elizabeth Critchley's because they were along the Sugar River. And then I could easily connect Bernice's in with them. Linda Moore, I would definitely connect hers with Ellen's or even Barbara Agnew's, um, especially with the age. So yeah, it's like, does it seem like mine's connected with all of them? No, not really. But the ones that I seem to be connected with, theirs seems to be connected with the others. And I think that's where where we're getting to the big question that people always ask is, do you think your case is connected with the Connecticut River Valley murders? And I think if you connect one by one by one by one, it's almost like a ladder effect. Mine may not be connected with, you know, step four, but it's connected with one and two and three. But one and two and three is connected with step four. So that would connect me with that one. Does that make any sense? Yeah, absolutely. The more I learn about these cases, the more I really have no doubt that my case 
my attack was definitely connected to these cases. I agree with you, Jane. Yeah, when we were trying to look for patterns, too, um, as far as with the victims, there really isn't, apart from we were able to find daytime attacks during the week, nighttime attacks during the weekend. But it's also interesting where either they were a hitchhiker or they had their own vehicles. And when you look at the vehicles that the women owned, it was a BMW, Firebird, Chevy Nova, and then I would say the outlier is a VW Rabbit. Apart from the Rabbit, those other threes are nice cars. Yeah. It was just kind of interesting to see that they were all nicer cars, the women that were attacked in their cars. Yeah. Don't know if there's any anything behind that, but it was just interesting. It wasn't like it was a woman driving a minivan or a Honda or something like that. They were all nicer cars, but there was no attempted robbery. So I don't know if those vehicles have anything to do or if it truly still was just opportunity. Yeah, victim of opportunity. And that's true. None of my pocketbook or anything was taken. Barbara's pocketbook and all her identification and everything was still there. That wasn't taken. So he definitely wasn't there to take belongings. He wanted the person. Yeah, because it seems like class has nothing to do with it. When you look at owner of a BMW, Firebird, Chevy Nova versus a hitchhiker that doesn't have a vehicle, that doesn't seem to really make a difference. But it was just interesting to see when necessarily call them high-end cars, but they weren't beaters for the women that were attacked in their vehicles. That's true. Now, a lot was brought up, too, about how uh, Barbara parked at the payphone because she was parked up on the grass. But if there was snow on the ground, she might not even realized it and just pulled as close to the payphone as possible without even thinking, am I on a sidewalk or anything like that? So that's one of those pieces where don't put a lot of validity into it as far as being something of importance. If you guys want to hear it, I have a theory about that where her car was actually found, I think that she was actually trying to get away from someone. And I think that's just where her car ended up. That's my theory as to why her car was found in such an odd spot and almost up on the grass. Yeah, I agree with you, Amanda. I believe that she was probably approached by the building where she she may have been parked to begin with. Because I can't imagine she would be parked so far away and tromp through the snow to get to the building to use the bathroom and then the payphone. So I believe she was parked there. Then she was being approached and she went to get away and that's how she ended up way up on the north side of the parking lot and on the grass. So yeah, I, I agree with your theory. Do you think she may have just said fuck it and was just doing donuts in the parking lot and that's how it ended up over there? You know, she may have. Nothing more fun than being in a parking lot full of snow with nobody around to just e-brake slides. If it was a little bit wider back there, I might say, yeah, it's not all that wide, but yeah, there's nothing more fun than pulling some donuts and some fresh snow, right guys? Jade said she liked to have fun. She was a lot of fun. I really did enjoy listening to Jade talk about her and who she was. You know, she was fun. She was a good skier, great skier. She was obviously an avid skier, but she was also always late. <laughs> who is always late (laughs) i'm always late i try to be on time and i try to be early and i just always am late i would have liked to have heard more about you know how she was a nurse because i actually have a story about that when i had jessica when jessica was born she had to be rushed up to lebanon and uh put in uh the nicu unit the ICU unit for newborns 
that next day I got shipped up there. So I was able to stay. I was still admitted into the hospital because I had a C-section. So I was going to be there for at least five to 10 days anyways. So I was brought up to Lebanon and admitted up there with, with Jessica. And uh, I had a nurse come in to visit me. She introduced herself. I can't for the life of me remember her name. It was 35 years ago. But um, she had told me that she worked with Barbara at the hospital and just very much wanted to come in to meet me and see how my baby was doing. So this is like a year and a half after that they found Barbara's body. Um, so it's pretty fresh in, in all their minds there. And uh, this nurse did continue to tell me how she was very much liked and she is very much missed at the hospital and that she loved being a nurse and she loved helping others. With talking to this nurse, finding out some you know pretty intimate things about Barbara and what she was like as a person, you know, this was in 1988. Uh, Barbara was found in, what, 87? So that wasn't really brought up in the episode, but I thought I'd share that information of, um, you know, Barbara being a nurse and loving her job and, and being such a kind person. You know, along with so many others, um, she's missed. She was liked very much, loved very much. Again, another one such a senseless act of evil upon another person for no reason. So many family and friends left behind that forever are going to miss these women. I did meet her sister, Anna, a few years ago. Or not really met her, but talked to her on the phone a couple of times. And she's a social worker in Maryland. Oh, this was back in, had to have been 15 years ago. Amongst our conversation, she had told me that her son, Leif, had had a very difficult life throughout his teens without his mom. Because I believe he was like, I don't know, 12 years old or something like that when Barbara was murdered. So I, I know that he had had a, a rough time going through a, his teens without his mom. And um, that's sad. I have no idea what his life is like today. I hope that maybe he was able to, you know, live a much better life as uh, he was getting older. But she did sound like a, an amazing person. Yep. Loved to be active. She was super social. Loved yeah. to dance. I love how she was described as having a very vivacious personality. Yes, I like that. Yeah, and uh, listening to Jade... You could tell they were very good friends. She obviously misses her very good friend very much. To hear her say that she's never gone to that rest area after that really, really gives you the perspective of, um, you know, how much her her murder has um, impacted her personally. Yeah. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. And now back to our episode. It was very interesting to hear... Uh, Richard Harris, the uh, plow guy, some of the information he brought forward as far as the tar tracks, tire tracks leading up a hill and then going out and that he identified that it was four wheel drive or Jeep tracks. Yeah. Now, some people might say, 
how the fuck do you identify type of car by the tire tracks? But I can attest when I delivered pizzas back in high school and college, I got very good at identifying Ford Victoria headlights when driving at night. And as soon as I saw them on the road, I would downshift so that way the cops wouldn't see brake lights to get back down to speed. So it's one of those where I can imagine somebody being very familiar just looking at that stuff on the ground could actually be able to identify that. I agree with you, Drew, that that very well could be a possibility. It could have been an assumption by his mind, too. Just speaking from being on that road, having been on that road, I can only imagine what that road was like during a snowstorm like that. You wouldn't be able to make it on that road in those conditions if you didn't have some sort of Jeep or four-wheel drive vehicle. I kind of agree with that. In a way, I would think, okay, obviously it was a four-wheel drive. So maybe this Richard Harris guy has either seen or there was a lot of Jeeps that are in the community. And maybe he just referred to four-wheel drive to be possibly a Jeep. I, too, believe that I, I think it was an assumption. But then on another, I have to look at it with an open mind and say, that is a pretty specific thing to say. I would have said some sort of four-wheel drive. Right. So for him to come out and say, the tracks look like a Jeep, a four-wheel drive or a Jeep, that's a red flag for me, too. Um, I'm glad Jen found that. I'm sure people did not pick up on that before. Kind of wonder if the authorities ever picked up on that. But then again, I know that there was no description of this person when Barbara's body was found. But then when my attack happened, obviously he was two times the age that I described my attacker to be. So, you know, he must have been an older person, probably going into his 60s, I'm going to guess. So to think of it that way, I take Richard Harris off that list of suspects because of the, the age thing. Oh, yeah, I don't think he's involved at all, but just that little piece of knowledge. And he brought that forward well before your attack. Yeah, so exactly. being able to exactly. put the two pieces together saying, hey, there was a Jeep and Jane's attack. These other tire tracks were made by a four-wheel drive vehicle and or Jeep. And with that, who knows, he might be able to identify uh, the difference in tracks between a four-wheel drive Jeep and a four-wheel drive truck because of the weight displacement and stuff like that. That's true. Maybe. We all know those weird people, those car people that can identify a vehicle based off of one little piece. We always joke with my dad that he says he's not a car guy. But we're driving down the road and he looks and he's like, oh, look at that. That's a 76 Camaro. How the fuck do you know that? He's like, the louvers. They only had those louvers in 76. And we're like, what the fuck is a louver? But he does. He's not a car guy. Dennis is the same way. He can tell you what year a uh, Chevy Blazer is, especially the older ones, because like the 70, 77 Chevy Blazers had the double lights, double headlights, one one light for high beam and then the other light was for low beam. And then you go to a 78 and it was one headlight that flicked to high or low beam. Yeah, he can. he's pretty good at that too. I'm not. <laughs>
sounds like a scene out of my cousin Vinny. That's all I've been thinking about this entire time. The second that you started talking, Drew, the scene in my cousin Vinny where she was talking about how it wasn't uh, possible. Attraction. Pause attraction. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So with him coming forward with that information, me personally put a lot more weight into that. It was just a very interesting, very specific piece of evidence that he was able to bring forward. Yeah. It was so evident for wheel drive. And um, obviously my attacker drove a four wheel drive. Paul Oaks, he was a suspect, but I think he was too obvious. I guess is the word I want to use. He had too many sexual components to his activities. Yeah. I think to be really tied to any of these murders because there was no sexual activities going on. But any of the other stuff that he got busted on or arrested for, sexual misconduct, sexual assault, stuff like that. In his log, too, he was actually during the time when Barbara pulled into the arrest era, he was logged at being at a different location at that time. Yeah. So even though he had visited the rest area prior, which was hmm, weird. But so at that time when Barbara actually pulled in, he was logged as actually working. So he actually did have an alibi. Yep, he sure did. It was interesting to hear Philpin talk about his personal interactions with him. Yeah, wasn't it? Yeah. And I wonder how many of those types of interactions Philpin's had in his career, you know? Just like odd, like what patient shows up to your house and just, you know, like unannounced. I don't know. Weirded me out for him. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I get kind of like, wow. I mean, I know the people that have come to my house uninvited, but to have someone like that come to my house and uninvited, I'd have been a little sketched out about it. Yeah. Now, did Jade ever speak to the cops? She must have, because she said that she asked to go to the crime scene and they were still doing the crime scene and they allowed her to show up there. So she had to have been interviewed at some point or another. I know that she had said that she had had to ask for permission to go to the crime scene. She wanted to go there and actually see what happened or what they think that happened. And I think at that time, Barbara was still just considered missing. Yeah, because they were doing the crime scene. So... She hadn't been found yet. So I don't know. I don't know if she talked to them after they found Barbara or not. I don't know. Yeah, because it sounded like from the interview that really only one other person besides Jen that has actually been able to find her and reach out to her, talk to her about the case, was this psychic. Yeah. Which we're seeing that a lot in these different cases. We are. But there are legit ones, and there are some that are not so legit. So, yes. We're going to be talking more about that. Real quick on that topic. I think that one needs to be extremely careful in dealing with this realm with people who are essentially seeking almost just like recognition and fame and sort of has some sort of ulterior motive. Unfortunately, that's what is most often publicized. So there is definitely, I would say, in more the majority than not of the cases, it leaves a bad taste in people's mouths involving psychics, especially if psychics are just, you know, essentially reaching out. Don't know anybody personally or anything like that. I agree. There's so much unknown about 
psychics and channeling and why they have these gifts and why some, you know, others do not have these gifts. And I think people question that a lot. It's not a visual someone else will see. Like with you, Amanda, when you channel things and I'm sitting right next to you, I don't see the visual like you see the visual. Some people will say, oh, well, you must have read it somewhere or you must have seen it somewhere or, you know, oh, you're guessing or you're just adding to adding to it for no reason, adding to a, a story or investigation or whatever for no reason. But when I'm sitting there with you and I know the answers already and you have not, and I know there's no reason or no way that you could possibly know some of these answers. With working with you, that's how I became a believer. And I don't even want to say believer. That's how I understand it better. And I think that's the big thing is understanding what you actually do. And you had to explain it to me. And I ask a lot of questions. And I feel the more that I learn about it, the more I understand it, and the more I can accept it, I guess is the the best way that I can explain it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And totally understandable. I understand that many people will have their own opinions about psychics and or information that I give or what I channel, or even in being public with saying that I can, in essence, you know, do this. I totally understand the skeptic perspective. If you have not experienced what I have experienced my entire life, you would not know. And there's no way that I can expect you to know unless you are open to me explaining it. And I can, in some way, validate it and prove to you kind of like what you were just talking about, Jane, if I'm picking up on pieces of information that there's no way that I can know these pieces of information, then that sort of helps validify that in your mind that, oh, there is something happening. And, And while I don't understand it, this is what she's getting. I respect skeptics. I totally do. Everybody's entitled to their own opinion. And I definitely don't want to just say the blanket statement that with any of the psychics that have been involved with any of these cases or any of the cases that we sit there and look at, that they're not valid psychics. I I don't want to put that out there. I have many friends in this field who are valid, who are fantastic at what they do. And they actually do this for a living. I choose to not go that route, but that's just my personal path and my personal choice. There's nothing wrong with it. All I'm saying is having the open mind to essentially go either way to being mindful about the information that's coming in, especially if you don't know somebody and they're just contacting you for some reason, understanding that there may be some sort of ulterior motive. And I think that's the underlying reason why so many psychics in cases like this do get a bad rap. Yeah. Now I'll ask a question. Is the title psychic the correct title for what you do for your gifts? Yes. The only thing that I would add would be psychic medium. I have no. all the clairs, so clair audience, clairsentience, but adding the medium piece to it means that I can actually connect with people that have passed on. And it's it's all about energy. Absolutely. And, and the more that you had described the energy perspective about what you do and uh, with your channeling, 
that is when I started really understanding. And once I understood that part of it, then I was like, okay, I believe now. You know, we're all made of energy. Yep. And what you do is, is um, legit. Amanda is very good at channeling. Thank you, Jared. I have experienced a few things that I can't even describe that happened. And if somebody else was sitting there and somebody else had witnessed what I had witnessed, they would be true believers because it was, um, there was a couple of things that were amazing, like crazy amazing. (laughs) Sometimes there's some pretty profound and powerful experiences. And so that just being there to witness it can definitely validate for some people. I believe everybody actually has this ability. And I'm not saying to necessarily to the degrees of other people, but everybody has that gut instinct. Everybody has the ability to tune into this piece of themselves in their soul where they will know things or get a feeling about a situation and can be right. I mean, you know, you ever get that gut feeling like right down in your gut, you just know something, something's wrong, something's bad, something happened. It happens to everyone. That, my friends, is tuning in and trusting yourself. Uh, What is it when you see things happen before it actually happens? A premonition. Premonition. I have those a lot. I have experienced a few things that I could not explain with myself. And I message Amanda. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, this just happened. What does this mean? What the hell does this mean? I find it fascinating. I ask a lot of questions because it's something um, almost supernatural. And I just want to learn more about it. I just want to know more about it all the time. And I love it. I love all your questions. You're pretty good at answering them. I try. Tangent about psychic stun. I did want to bring up just a little bit of, you know, her body was found a little decomposed, but they were able to discover how she died. And I kind of wonder if they were able to, because she fought so much. It was so evident in her car and everything that she fought a lot. Kind of wonder if they actually got any DNA or anything whether from her body, her, her, or her car, or fingerprints, or anything like that, to, once again, compare to what they found at my crime scene and on my car. I wonder if they've ever did comparison. Because it was right after Barbara's attack is when they started the task force, or right around that same time. But back then, they didn't have the technologies that they do today. I would hope that throughout the years, uh, New Hampshire and Vermont had been talking and comparing notes and um, possibly um, comparing any kind of DNA or fingerprints or anything that they may have found at either her crime scene or my crime scene. But that's something we'll probably never know. It would be really, really nice to have these case files. Certainly would. Now, I don't know if Jen's going to cover this in the second part of Dark Valley, but with Barbara's case, there was a deathbed confession by somebody who admitted to the murder. Now, we covered this in our Suspects episode in season one about Gary Westover. We talk about his confession and why we think he should be taken with a grain of salt. But definitely go to it, listen to our episode it's titled Suspects Season One, where we talk about uh, 
Nicolau and also Gary Westover in his deathbed confession. I think his deathbed confession, though, I could be wrong and we can go back and look at it, but I think his deathbed confession was they murdered a woman but never really said that it, it was Barbara Agnew. I think he had done the deathbed confession in that time period, saying that in that time period he had murdered a woman, and once they looked up who was murdered in that time frame, they came up with Barbara Agnew. But I don't believe that he actually ever said that it was Barbara Agnew that they had murdered. Right. It was murdering a woman during a snowstorm during that time period. Exactly. Yeah, that is uh, information that definitely needs to be taken with a grain of salt. But it'll be interesting if Jen does find some more information on that. Yeah. If she does cover that in the second part of Dark Valley, we will definitely reevaluate how we view that deathbed confession if Jen's able to find something different. Yeah, exactly. What a cliffhanger, huh? I was just going to say that. We need to talk about the cliffhanger. Holy crap. I did not see that coming. Yeah, she did a phenomenal job with how she ended that episode. It's episode seven. I mean, like, who does not want to continue listening and following Dark Valley? Who does not after listening to that? I have a feeling that's when um, my story will be uh, approaching. Some good, good stuff coming up. So that's one thing I noticed with the cliffhanger that Jen left this first part of the season off with was the emotion you could hear from you, Jane. Now, I think I touched on it a couple of reaction episodes before when you were talking about Ellen Freed. And I brought up the fact of it was the first time I heard fear in your voice when talking. Because over the years, it very much has gotten to the this happened to you. It was an event. But you tell it as if it's like a story. So very matter of fact, this is what happened. So it's been interesting with this Dark Valley to see a lot of those candid emotional moment. So I'm very much looking forward to you, the telling of your attack in this setting, because I bet you it's one way that I've never actually heard it. Absolutely is to not reveal too, too much, but it was right after the butterfly was flying around me when we were at Ellen's site where she had been found. It was the perfect time to actually share my story with with Jen. It was very emotional. I highly encourage everybody to continue to follow and listen to Dark Valley, especially the episodes coming up, because it's going to be some powerful stuff. I should warn people, (laughs) have a box of tissue around, because it, it gets very emotional for me. The amount of raw emotion you have while telling this is something that I had never heard before. Yeah. For whatever reason, I just felt like that was the perfect time and perfect place to sit with Jen and share my story. For whatever reason, I was going to tell my story like I've never told it before. It's not scripted and it's not fake. It's very real and very raw. 
Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Invisible Tears. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast to hear all future episodes. Click into our link tree too in the episode description to find and follow us on all our social medias. And it also links to our website, invisible-tears.com, where you can keep current on any events that may be coming up, read more about Jane and the team, and read more about all the Connecticut River Valley unsolved cases. If you want to learn more about my wellness practice, Guided Path Wellness, head to guidedpathwellness.org. There you can read more about me and my certifications, more about the Reiki and coaching services I offer both in person and remote, and read all about my products for sale that I make through the practice. Feel free to utilize the contact us section on the website with any questions or utilize that free 15-minute consultation booking button if you have any questions about what might work for you. Evil may exist in this world, but we will not let it win. See you next episode.